According to a new scientific advisory, in some cases of out-of-hospital sudden cardiac arrest, bystanders are now encouraged to immediately perform continuous chest compressions as cardiopulmonary resuscitation. In what circumstances is this compression-only technique now considered most effective? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, Professor of Surgery at Chicago Medical School. And our guest today is Dr. Michael Sayer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. Dr. Sayer is the lead author of new recommendations for bystanders providing CPR after a sudden cardiac arrest. Welcome, Dr. Sayer. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Today we are discussing the impact of assisted ventilation in CPR. Dr. Sayer, can you give us a brief background on the discussion surrounding assisted ventilation in cardiopulmonary resuscitation? Sure. The debate about what is the appropriate role for ventilation has been going on for probably since mouth-to-mouth ventilation was introduced by Dr. Peter Saffer in the late 1950s. Why is that? I think a couple of reasons. One is the fact that particularly health professionals don't particularly want to give mouth-to-mouth to somebody they don't know. I think that's part of it. And then I think another key part, which maybe is underappreciated, is that especially when there's only one rescuer, it takes a fair amount of time away from the chest, away from doing chest compressions to actually give rescue ventilation. What do you mean by that, sir? Well, in research conducted in England using normal volunteers who participated in mock resuscitations, the researchers learned that it took 15 or 16 seconds for the rescuer to stop doing chest compressions, move up to the head, open the airway, give two breaths, move back down to the chest, find the right place, and begin chest compressions again. Well, which is the most important? We think that Without circulating blood to the brain, the ventilations don't really do any good at all. So it's clear to us at this point that we have not appreciated the crucial role of chest compressions over the years and that we need to be doing more chest compressions than we were in the past. Does adequate chest compression also help respiratory? Well, I think the chest compressions alone work a couple of ways. So one way is to remember that when most people have a sudden cardiac arrest, they've developed ventricular fibrillation. And therefore, the last breath that the victim took before their arrhythmia occurred left a decent reserve of oxygen in the lungs as well as in the great vessels and in the heart. And we can take advantage of that oxygen reservoir and circulate oxygen to the brain and to the heart which is where it will be shunted preferentially with chest compressions. So if if think about this, it, when we were all kids, we would practice holding our breath in the pool, right? And you hopefully could hold your breath for 30 seconds, maybe even a minute if you were really good. And that's with an awake body and you're moving and burning oxygen and building up carbon dioxide, which eventually stimulates your need to breathe. But in cardiac arrest, of course, there's a much lower metabolic demand And even with the best chest compressions, they're only circulating maybe 25% of the normal cardiac output. So that reserve is going to last for several minutes at a minimum. Now, for many years, and also subtly introduced when I took my ACLS classes every several years, medical professionals have been unofficially making recommendations about hands-only CPR. So how long has this debate been part of the discussion about CPR? Well, 
American Heart had a uh, position statement on this in 1997. And at that time, the position was that this is an interesting idea and might be a good thing to do for patients, but we really just don't have enough data yet to make a recommendation change. So clearly, this debate's been going on for at least 10 or 15 years. And can you briefly tell us, what is the proper technique for chest compressions? Um, Well, what we want the public to understand is that any compressions are better than no compressions. So the key message from my point of view to the general public and to our patients has to be that doing something is better than nothing. And I think sometimes getting too precise about the instructions gets in the way of that message. For health professionals, what we want them to do is we want people to push in the center of the sternum between the nipples, and we would like compressions that are deep, approximately one and a half to two inches, with an ideal rate, and that's comparable to, say, the R-DAR interval, of around 0.6 seconds, so approximately 100 compressions a minute. So that requires a a fair amount of strength and weight of the person doing the CPR. Yes, it does. It's a good workout. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and with me today is Dr. Michael Sayer, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. We're discussing the impact of assisted ventilation in CPR. Dr. Sayer, why are we focusing on bystanders in particular? Well, we know there's a large body of evidence that shows that CPR works. So I know there's physicians out there that whose personal experience is CPR doesn't work. And I'd like them to understand this is definitely not true. CPR works. If it's done early, the victim's chance of survival roughly doubles or even triples. And the problem we have is that across the country, only about a third of sudden cardiac arrest victims get any form of CPR before EMS arrives. Why do you think that is? Dr. Bob Swore from Beaumont Hospital in uh, suburban Detroit had a research assistant call bystanders a couple of weeks after cardiac arrest and interview them and ask them that. Why did or did you not actually start CPR? And what they found was a couple of things. First of all, the main reason people didn't start CPR was not what I thought it would be, which was they didn't want to do mouth-to-mouth, but rather it's because they didn't feel competent, just didn't know what to do, and they were afraid they'd hurt the person or they panicked. And is this for only witnessed cardiac arrest or unwitnessed cardiac arrest? Well, in that research study, they looked at all forms of cardiac arrest. Our recommendation, therefore, is trying to deal with the competence issue. So we want rescuers to feel comfortable that they can do something useful here. And by simplifying the instructions and telling people they need to do just two things for a witnessed cardiac arrest, that is call 911 and start chest compressions, we're hopeful that that will increase the rate of bystander CPR and save lives. Now, why witnessed and not unwitnessed? Partly that's just because we're trying to be pure to the science. So the studies that we have to base our recommendation on mostly focused on patients who had witnessed cardiac arrest, and that it does account for the majority of all of the cardiac arrest patients, but it's certainly not every one of them. And the second reason is, is it's clear there are people who really do need air. So someone that drowned, for example, gets pulled out of a swimming pool, they need rescue breaths. In an ideal world, that's what they would get. However, I think if we 
focus on this group of patients that we have good evidence for, and a witness sudden cardiac arrest, probably 9 out of 10 of them are, gonna, are going to have ventricular fibrillation as the cause of the event. Now, what cases of cardiac arrest would you not recommend hands-only? The science that we have tells us much less about what to do for the people who are not witness ventricular fibrillation patients. So we're left there with animal studies to extrapolate to humans. And a couple of studies have looked at asphyxial cardiac arrest. And it's clear that rescue breathing plus chest compressions in animal models is better than chest compressions alone. But perhaps what's not appreciated is that chest compressions alone, even in those cases, are better than nothing. So if the rescuer knows CPR, then ideally that's, they'll do conventional CPR with rescue breathing plus compressions for asphyxial type arrests and other events where the victim probably does need air, such as children. What about positioning the airway and making sure initially that it's not blocked? Is that important? So I think what you're driving at there is the question of, do you have a decent tidal volume with just chest compressions? Exactly right. And that's a little hard to answer because the animal models don't tell us that so well. So the airway anatomy in pigs, which is where most of this kind of research is done, is different than humans. And pigs tend to have a much more open airway than humans do, especially obese humans. So we know that in pigs, they'll tend to gasp and move a fair amount of air with just chest compressions. But our experience in humans is that humans who don't have somebody actually working to maintain an airway probably don't move very much air just with chest compressions. Now, what about children? In kids, I think we have fortunately or unfortunately, very little evidence to guide our decisions. So partly that's due to the good thing, which is that pediatric cardiac arrest outside the hospital is relatively uncommon. So doing research in that group of patients is hard. But we do know that most kids who have a cardiac arrest have an asphyxial cause for that event. Either it's due to airway, acute airway obstruction, choking, or drowning, or uh, the end stage of a longer process such as sepsis that really has meant that the patient's oxygen reserve is depleted, and therefore it makes sense, it's extrapolated from clinical experience, that those kids probably would do best if they got rescue breathing plus chest compressions. Now, if you have two bystanders and they have a witnessed arrest, should one do chest compressions and one do rescue breathing, or should they just stick with chest-only treatment? recommendation is that they should do what they know. So if they have been trained and they feel comfortable doing chest compressions plus rescue breathing, then that's what they should do. If they've not been trained or they don't feel comfortable, then they should do compression-only CPR, hands-only CPR. And maybe after a couple of minutes, they could switch because, as we said earlier, you get tired doing this. Well, how do you think we're going to get the public, the bystanders, really getting involved in terms of doing immediate cardiac compressions on a witnessed arrest? It's going to be challenging. And we believe that our advisory statement is step one in many steps. So one thing that we're trying to get the word out around here is giving people permission to act, that even if they haven't been trained, they can help. Number two, and I think physicians can play a crucial role in this, is encouraging their patients to actually get training. Because even though we've given permission to act here, we know people are more likely to act if they've actually had a chance to practice because they'll feel more confident in what they're doing. Can a bystander ever hurt a patient by not being trained and trying to do chest compressions? Now, that's certainly an excellent question and clearly something that many bystanders worry about. I've spoken to 
numerous cardiac arrest survivors, and uniformly the response that I've gotten from them is they would gladly trade a couple of broken ribs for being alive. So the chances that they will cause a serious injury are very low. Obviously, minor injuries such as broken ribs do happen with CPR, though. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Michael Sayer. We have been discussing the impact of assisted ventilation in CPR. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at ReachMD.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening. This ReachMD program is featured on Sermo, a free online community exclusively for physicians. To discuss this program with your colleagues, visit www.sermo.com. That's S-E-R-M-O dot com. When you join, enter ReachMD in the promotion box to receive a $15 Amazon gift card.